in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Each psalm has a title, and the title of this psalm, 76, to the chief musician on a stringed instrument, a son of Asaph, a song. The chief musician, some supposed to be our Lord Jesus Christ, and others said the chief musician is the leader of the choir or the musicians in David's time, like Heman, the singer, or Asaph, the chief musician. Then on a stringed instrument, probably the name of a musical instrument of eight strings, perhaps a harp which was touched by hand or with a feather or bow. A psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a great singer and musician of David's and Solomon's time. And Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition, as we read in 1 Chronicle 25 verse 1 and 2 Chronicle 29 verse 30. But some scholars think this psalm have been composed after the defeat of Sanharib and after the death of David and after the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah were separated because in verse 1 he mentioned Judah alone and Israel alone. So they attribute this psalm to a later Asaph to, or to someone who was the literal or a spiritual descendant of Asaph who lived during the time of David and Solomon. This psalm is giving thanks to God for victory in a certain battle. But we don't know which conflict or battle is commemorated in this psalm. It is generally thought to be written on account of some great victory obtained by the Jews over their enemies. Could be their victory over the Ammonites in the time of David, or can be when the Assyrian uh, king Sanharib besieged Jerusalem, because before they could attack, most of the army were mysterious mysteriously and miraculously killed in that night. Maybe the battle was in the time of Jehoshaphat, when his enemies were defeated in a wonderful manner, which brought great joy and thankfulness, as we read it in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. Another observation when we compare Psalm 75 and Psalm 76 lead to the conclusion that both Psalms were inspired by the song of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and both refer to the same circumstances. So Psalms 75 and 76 can be viewed as a pure descent, meaning what? 
Faith in Psalm 75, song of victories to come. But 76, of triumph achieved. So 75, about victories to come. And 76, about victory that was achieved. 75, Psalm 75 praises God in general for his righteous character and his protection in the past of his people, anticipating God's intervention in the future. Psalm 76 is a prayer of thanksgiving after God's deliverance, because Psalm 75 can be read as a prayer for God's deliverance in the future. So the psalm praises God for the righteous victory he brought about on behalf of his people. Which it is good and proper to seek God in prayer at all times, at every step of the way, before, during, and after every event in our life. So it is good to remember God before and during and after every event in our life. This psalm is a short psalm, only 12 verses. Verse 1 to 3, the greatness of God in Zion. 4 to 6, praise to the triumphant God. 7 to 9, giving honor to the great God. 10 to 12, honoring the God who rules over all. So let's start from verse 1. Verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salim also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So Asaph happily proclaimed that God was known in Judah and that his name is great in Israel. God is known, meaning what? Meaning that God has revealed himself and has made himself known by his word, the law, and by the glorious works of his wisdom and power. While God is revealed all over the world to all people of all nations by the revelation of his great works and the creation, as we read in the Psalms, heaven declared the glory of God. But God had made himself known in a very special way to the people of Israel. He spoke directly to them. He gave them his law. He raised up prophets to instruct and guide his people. Other nations had their own ideas of deity. But the true revelation of God came through the Jewish people, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only that, that God made himself known in Israel, but there was another connection with Israel. It is in their land that God chose to make his dwelling place 
and to establish his tabernacle, the tabernacle of meeting, where God can meet with his people. As we read in verse 2, in Salim also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So God not only revealed himself to them, but he chose to dwell there. And Asaf mention of the tabernacle is likely that the tabernacle was brought to Salim, to the city of Zion, when David brought the Ark of Covenant to the city of Zion. Salim, it is the ancient name of Jerusalem. And Salim means Salam, peace. God's place is in peace. God dwells in peace. By using this term for the city of God, Salim, the psalmist reminds God's people of the peace that could happen after God's intervention and protection on their behalf. There was a battle, but when God intervened, he brought back the peace to Jerusalem. His tabernacle can be interpreted of the incarnation of the Son of God. So the human nature of Christ can be that his tabernacle, the true tabernacle in which the Logos, actually, when he was made flesh, dwelt among us. Where did he dwell? In Jerusalem, among the Jews, and in other parts of Judea. Salim or Jerusalem also can represent the church of God. In the midst of the church, Christ resides. And in the new Jerusalem, the tabernacle of God will be with men. He dwell among them, as we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. So the expression, the word there, in Salim also, his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion, there, there, he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. There, in, in the beginning of verse 3, there, to show that deliverance, celebrated in Jerusalem, or very near to Jerusalem, there in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem became the center of Israel when David conquered the city and brought peace to the city of peace, Jerusalem. So in many ways, before and after, God breaks the weapons of those set against him and his people. That's why he said, there in Jerusalem, he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. God miraculously intervened on behalf of his people. Foolish they are who fight against God, because their defeat is certain. Whatever mighty weapons man can shape, They are, these weapons, they are worthless in the face 
of an all-powerful God. And according to St. Augustine, those who do not confess their sins and haughtily enter as though into a battle against God, all their weapons on which they depend will be broken. St. Augustine says, the war which they were waging against God by defending their sins, all these things he has broken there. Verse 3 is concluded by the word sila, and sila actually is a word that means pause for contemplation. So now it is time to contemplate about all the victories that God brought to Israel, how he broke the arrows of the bow and the shield and the sword of battle. Verse 4. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. So the psalmist continues speaking of God's glory and power and thought of the beauty and bounty of the mountains of prey. And he knew that the Lord God was more glorious and excellent than these beautiful places. So the psalmist, in speaking of God's glorious and excellent, seemed to struggle to come up with words to describe the infinite glory and power of God. So he was out of words due to the limited vocabulary. That's why he said, you are more glorious, more excellent than the mountains of prey. What is the mountains of prey? What does this mean? The word prey, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y, P-R-E-Y. The word prey, as used here, means that which is obtained by hunting and by obtained by stealing or robbing. It's usually applied to the food of wild beasts and the beasts of prey. But here he said mountains of prey. So these mountains considered the dwelling place or the stronghold of robbers and thieves from where they go out in search for victims. These mounts, because they were very high, There are rocks in it, so they were like strongholds, provided safe places for the robbers. And thus these mountains is considered symbols of power. So the psalmist here, what did he mean? You are more glorious than the mountain of prey. He means you are greater, stronger, and has more splendor than all the earthly kingdoms, however great is their dominion and terror on the face of the earth. So as the enemies hide in these mountains, but God is greater. So the dominion of these kingdoms is just for a certain time, whereas the dominion of God is eternal. The greatness of these mountains will come to an end in an instant 
at the end of the world. Whereas the glory and greatness of God will never end. So after he said, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey, in verse 5 he said, the stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep. And none of the mighty men have found use of their hands. So, now there is a vivid description of the adversity. The aggressors, those who have strong heart, the men who came so confidently to the invasion, the great dominant race that has spoiled all the nations of the earth, and they feared no one, now they became powerless and were spoiled and their armor and riches became a prey to those they thought to have made prey of. So these strong people who plundered many other nations, now they are plundered by Israel because God is with them. They have sunk into their sleep and none of the mighty men has found use of their hands. As the Assyrians and others tried to invade Israel for spoil, but they couldn't. Instead of taking spoil, they had to forsake all their own treasures and run away, leaving behind them as a spoil what they have got in their own hands. God who is greater than the mountains helped his people in the battle. He helped them by confounding their enemies who were sunk into their sleep. These mighty men suddenly can make no resistance. They are paralyzed. They cannot even move a hand. That what he said, none of the mighty men have found use of their hand as if they became paralyzed. They became utterly unable to bear arms, whether for offense or even for defending themselves. So, this can be applied also to Satan in our spiritual warfare. Don't be afraid of Satan as long as God is with you. In any warfare, you can defeat Satan, can crush Satan under your feet through the power of God. So, these opponents refer to those who have put their whole hope in temporal things. Their life would soon pass away as a dream. As a dream they saw in their sleep, then woke up to find themselves got nothing. Their weakness is laughable in comparison to God's might. Whatsoever strength, courage, or intelligence, or any other skill any man has, God who gave it can take it away when it pleases God. Verse 6, At your rebuke, O Lord, a word accomplished all. One word of God 
One word from him accomplished everything. They were terrified by one word spoken by God. God of the covenant and of the promise fought for his people. It was not by any human means that this immense army was overthrown. In one night, 185,000 soldiers were killed. It is by the power of God alone. The horses were stretched on the ground. The chariots stood still as if the whole camp had fallen asleep. The chariot, the horses, as well as the men were all overpowered in the same night. St. Augustine says, Who are they who ride horses? Those who refuse to be humble. Of course, he is not speaking literally about horse riding because it is not sin to ride horses. But it is a sin for man to lift up his horn on high and to speak with a stiff neck, to think of himself as more distinguished than others. Verse 7, You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Asaph in verse 7 thought of the importance of giving honor and reverence to the great God. He emphasizes the personal aspect of God that God himself to be feared more than the things that he does. He himself to be feared. By saying you yourselves, the psalmist means you alone are to be feared. No one is like you. In the world we fear much, but in the reality it is God alone whom we should fear. Who may stand in your presence, as he said in verse 7? This is a question for any and all who dwell on earth. No one had the power to do it. Surely, neither the wisdom of the wise, nor the power of the mighty, nor the world itself can stand a single moment before God when once he is angry. In verse 6, the psalmist says that the adversaries will be cast into a dead sleep. Now in verse 7 he said, Who may stand in your presence? Meaning, with the coming of the day of judgment at the last day, there would be no more chance to stand before God, neither to oppose nor to repent. The door is closed. Then, they will realize just how much they deserve the anger of God because of their non-repentance and opposition to God. So our respect and reverence for God goes beyond admiration of his greatness. It is also connected with our knowledge of his righteousness, his power, and his authority as judge. There is no standing before his justice. At the judgment seat, we cannot stand with boldness and confidence unless 
وار كلوزد باي هيز رايتشسنس فيرس 8 يو كوست جادجمنت تو بي هيرد فروم هيفن ذا ايرث فيرد اند ووز ستيل سو ذا اوفر ثرو اوف ذيس انيميز ووز ا مانيفست جادجمنت فروم جاد got uttered from heaven and was executed on earth. The world itself seemed to hear the voice of God and to stand in awe. The earth was still. It seemed to be profoundly attentive to God's voice. And some think that there was an earthquake when the angel struck the Assyrian camp. The 185,000. It may regard the panic the other nations were in when they heard of the killing of the Assyrian camp. So other nations start to panic. It is not uncommon in the scripture to represent the earth, the hills, the mountains, the stream, the river, the plains as conscious of the presence of God. They either rejoicing or trembling at the voice of God. As he said here in verse 8, that the, the earth feared and was still. Also verse 8 can refer to the second coming of Christ to the last judgment. Verse 9, when God arose to judgment, to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, Selah. So when Christ the judge shall descend from heaven, the voice of the archangel shall be heard, the last trumpet shall sound, and the dead in the graves shall hear it, and rise and stand before the judgment seat. God uses his righteous might, not primarily to defend himself, but to deliver all the oppressed. That's why verse 9, why God arose to judgment? Not to defend himself. He doesn't need to defend himself. But to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Because God cares for the poor and needy. And every deed will be recompensed when God rises to judgment. And according to St. Augustine, The meek in heart are those who in their humility has confessed their own sins and repented. So when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. And again the word Silah here is posed for contemplation about the righteousness of God and his care about the poor, the needy and the meek and the humble. Verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. How come? Wrath and anger is considered a sin. So how the wrath of man shall praise God? With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. What does this verse mean? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. In verse 9, Asaph considered the judgment of God and how God uses his judgment to deliver the oppressed. Now, 
Asaf see the perfect wisdom and providence of God who can work all things together in a marvelous way that even the wrath of man eventually will bring praise and glory to God. So all rebellion against God at the end will lead to the glory of God. It serves to set his sovereignty in a clearer light. All that that did not submit to God shall be subdued to him at the end. And the Bible and history are filled with the fulfillment of this principle in verse 10. For example, Haman was filled with wrath against Mordechai. God used the wrath of Haman to bring glory to himself at the end. Another example, the religious leaders during the time of our Lord Jesus Christ were filled with wrath against the Son of God. God used this wrath of the religious leaders to bring himself praise at the end. So we can see how this principle that the wrath of man will bring praise to God fulfilled also in the history. What did he mean by with the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself? Remainder of wrath also probably means the wrath of man. So the mighty works of God affect different people in different ways. First comes the promise to bring good out of even the wrath of man. And then the promise to restrain the wrath. So the first part of verse 10 about how God will bring good out of the wrath of man. The second part is how God will restrain the wrath. So the idea here is all wrath which is manifested among people would be made to praise God and all which would not contribute to this purpose God will prevent them and he will restrain them he will put them under his control that's meaning he girded himself with the remainder of wrath mean they will be under his control he will restrain them. There was nothing in the heart or purpose of man that was beyond his authority or control. Like the beautiful song that the choir chanted today, God is in control. Man could do nothing in his wrathful plans that God could not end or abolish in his own way and for his own glory and honor. The word gird himself or gird yourself, it may mean here that God would gird it on as a sword and would make use of it as a weapon for executing his own purposes. And some translate gird yourself mean God girds on himself as ornament. 
So God even will adorn himself with the remainder of man's wrath against him and against his people. Meaning what? When he turned them to his own honor and glory so as if he adorned himself with the remainder of wrath. Verse 11 Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. So Asaph brought a logical conclusion to the facts that he presented. If God is that great, then we owe our vows to him. And vows made should be paid to him. In, in verse 11, he is addressing the people of Israel. Under the circumstances, they most likely have made vows to God in the time of their great trouble and battle, as the great invading army surrounded Jerusalem and before the deliverance came. So the psalmist reminding the people here to pay these vows. As God kept his promises, his people ought to keep their promises. St. Augustine says, What ought we all in common to vow, all of us, what we should vow to God, to believe in him, to hope from him for eternal life, to live godly according to a measure common to all, for there is a certain measure common to all men. End of quote. Many fathers distinguished between the collective vow of all the believers and the individual vow. The collective vow is the dedication of the whole heart and its energy to God. On the day of baptism, when we renounce Satan and we confess to the Lord Jesus Christ, we made a vow to dedicate our heart and all our life and all our energies to God. If Christ said, for their sake I sanctify myself, that they also be sanctified by the truth, then it is for us to say back, for your sake, O Lord, we sanctify ourselves for you and by you, O Holy One. That is the collective vow. But what is the individual vow? The individual vow is not for everyone, but it is according to how much love for God and longing for exaltation and perfection the believers proclaim this vow. St. Augustine gives some examples of vows of proper for individuals. For example, one can vow marital chastity, like St. John Kama and his wife, or Pope Demetrius and his wife. Others vow even virginity from the beginning of life, like monks and nuns. And according to St. Augustine, these men have vowed the greatest vow. Other vow that their house shall be placed for rest for all the saints. They may come, hospitality, and hosting the strangers. A great vow they vow. Another vow to sell all his goods to be distributed to the poor and go into a community, into sight of saints. That's another great vow. St. Augustine says, Vow and pay to the Lord our God. Let each one vow what he shall have willed to vow. 
let him give heed to this, that he pay what he has vowed. If any man does look back with regard to what he has vowed to God, it is an evil. So, if I regret the vow I made and I wanted to take it back, St. Augustine said, this is an evil. And the Bible says, it's better not to vow than to vow and break your vow. So, we can and should honor God with more than our vows. That's why in the second part of verse 11, he said, in humble submission, we should bring presents to God, giving to him our fairest and our best. Even the princes and kings of the earth can and should see the awe of this great God and bring presents to him. Because he is the one ought to be feared. Last verse, verse 12, he shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Shall cut off the spirit of princes. He will cut down their cut down their pride. They should keep their vows to him and bring prison to honor him. No one is excluded from reverence and praise of the great God and King. Before the mighty works of God, even the most powerful rulers stand in awe and in fear. And the psalmist try here to allude to what God had done as celebrated in this psalm, how he brought victory to Israel. He had shown that he could rebuke the pride and the self-confidence of kings and could bring them law at his feet when he said he shall cut off the spirit of princes. So they are wholly under his control. He can defeat their plans. He can and will make their plans, even their wrath, the means of carrying out his own purposes. He will allow them to proceed no further in their plans of evil than he can use it to the continuation of his own glory. He is, an, he is awesome to the kings of the earth, as he said in verse 12. If they are not wise as to submit themselves to him, he will force them to call in vain to mountains and rocks to fall on them and to hide them from his wrath, as we read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. St. Augustine says, All humble men to confess to him and to adore. This concludes Psalm 76. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.